Ian Smith has advertised for three more players to complete his band. He managed to find a drummer, but had no luck in filling the trombone or piano chairs. Who walks in when I walk out? Who gives you that hearty high? Baby, who's that who I'm talking about? You're listening to episode two of the podcast, Who Walks In? The story of the New Harlem Jazz Band. My name's Bill Morris. When drummer Richard Opat read The Age newspaper on a Saturday, he always went to the classified advertisements first. There was an amusement column where different people would be looking for different people. And a friend of mine, John By, had an advertisement where he had a jazz band looking for a drummer. This was the mid-60s. I became that drummer. And after a couple of years, I decided to move on. And I saw another advertisement in the same age newspaper for another band looking for drummer, which I went to the audition in 1969, which turned out to be the new Harlem Jazz Band. And I got the drum chair. Luckily, I think I was the only drummer who applied. Richard's interest in music and playing the drums started when he was very young. I fell in love with the sound of drums when I was a little boy at primary school back in the 50s. I must have been about seven or eight, and I got to play in the school band on a drum. The sound of jazz was in our home, even though I didn't recognise that at the time, because it wasn't called jazz. It was just the pop music of the day, so it would have been 78s, by Fats Waller and Graham Bell, the typical sort of things you'd find in so many homes. My goodness, I feel so effervescent this morning. Mm, everything's so eulogizing. Listen, can you stand me to tell you about it? Listen here. I'm walking, walking on air, for I've left all my blue days behind. Oh, baby, I've learned how to care And there's love, really love on my mind I'm the world's most happy creature Tell me what can worry be I'm crazy about my baby And my baby's crazy about me Mr. Cupid was the teacher And we also had a famous banjo player who lived over the road And he'd practice every afternoon name was Heck McLennan and it was a quiet street and the sound just wafted, just cut straight across the road and I just loved that sound. So by the time I was in my early teens, jazz was popular music. There was stuff on the hit parade, which really was jazz. And I just started playing in jazz bands when I was about 14 at school. Whilst he didn't respond to Ian's advertisement, trombonist Chris Ludwig joined the band not long after Richard Opat. 
My wife Marilyn and I were married in 68 and we lived in Caulfield just near the race course there and Smithy used to come in and try and get me to join. There were a couple of subjects I still had to pick up, you know, and uh, Marilyn said, no, no, no. I was, I was quite happy to, to do that, you know, but she said, no, finish your, your course first. And I, Steve Budell also was trying to get me to come and join Creole Bells to play bass, so I had to say no. <laughs> but Smithy was very, very persistent and the next year he came again and I went along to a rehearsal, gradually sort of percolated into the, uh, into the band. Chris grew up in Sri Lanka, and like Ian and most of the other band members, had been exposed to music at an early age. My earliest recollection of listening to uh, music was actually at my grandfather's. We, we had a, what used to be known as an HMV re-entrant gramophone, so that when you open the doors, the whole front area is the front of the horn, yeah? It's a folded horn, nine-foot folded horn. And um, my grandparents and my, both my parents were heavily into classical music. And, and the popular, popular songs, you know, the, uh, what used to be, we call now the, um, the golden years of um, American music. <clears throat> so all those tunes and some of the English pop, popular dance band tunes, like the Al Bowleys and all that, those are the sort of records we, I, I grew up with on 78s. And I didn't discover jazz until I was about 13, when my cousin, who lived in the outlying areas of uh, Sri Lanka, came and boarded with us. He brought his um, collection of, of LPs, and he used to play them on, the, on our player. And I'd see him sitting in front, you know, with his tongue hanging out and his eyes closed, and moving his hands, you know, totally engrossed in this jazz. And I somehow started to, to listen to what he was listening to and was infected by it, you know. Uh, and I remember the sort of stuff he was playing. It was the, the jam session bands of Eddie Condon. I bought my first first jazz 45. I think it was the first stereo recording released by Philips, and it was the Dutch Swing College Band on the 45. And I think Ice Cream was one one of the tunes. So I, I started listening to Dutch Swing College, then Chris Barber and, and the Three Bs, Barber Ball and Bilk. I was into that, you know, in my early early years, 16, 17, and suddenly discovered the late music of Louis Armstrong, the the All Stars period. I played piano as a kid, but I didn't sort of continue with it. I did about three or four years of piano. But I still played at home, playing by ear. But I always wanted to play play trombone and bass after I discovered jazz. And at school, I remember growing up in Colombo, I used to do swimming. And sometimes it, there was a group of us um, who got together in the change room and um, jam stuff like the Mills Brothers. You know, I, I would take the trombone part and somebody else would do the trumpet part. We'll take a boat to the land of dreams Steam down 
dad let me go to hear uh, Jack T. Garden, who was touring through Ceylon at the time and did a concert, a cabaret concert in Colombo and um, it started at something like nine o'clock at night, you know, which is crazy because I was 16 and he let me go with one of my best friends who uh, used to play jazz sax. In the interval, they, they, we, the band came and spoke to the, the patrons there, you know, and that was fantastic. It's just speaking to Max Kaminsky and Jack T. Garden. There were no trombonists in Sri Lanka. The, most of them were, might have been in the police band or something, or the uh, navy band, and just readers. You know, there was there were no jazz trombone players, no one to learn from. And trombone's pretty expensive there too. So I didn't um, take up trombone until I came to Australia. So moved here when I was 18 in '62, and in in school there was a trombone and a double bass spare in the music room, and I conned the uh, head of music to let me take it home and and learn them. So that's what I did. It comes with all the bad habits that you do when you're learning by yourself. I'm still trying to get rid of them. <laughs> Chris already had some experience playing in bands when he joined New Harlem. In Geelong, uh, there was a band called the Crescent City, and this was at, right at the tail end of the, uh, the jazz boom in 63, 64. And they used to have a jazz dance at Trades Hall on Saturday nights. And I sort of joined them, you know, pretty raw trombone in 64, 65 and, and the Beatles had by that time had taken all the crowd away from, from jazz <laughs> so we had about six months left at the trade hall after I joined Crescent City and uh, that was that I did play with Des Cam and this was when I was living in Geelong um, Des had, a, had, had um, a regular Friday night at the Grovedale Hotel, the old place was like a shack, just an old shack in the middle of countryside and on Friday nights that was the only jazz venue in the whole of Victoria almost so people like like Smithy Peter Gordian Peter Stagg they'd come down to this gig you know 50 years on recollections about when and how the band's name became the new Harlem jazz band are a little hazy there is no doubt that Harlem was an important part of the name from the beginning all the time that Tim Harding had been in the band I had wanted to call the band rather grandly the Royal Harlem Jazz Band, and there was a reason for it, and that was I always wanted to play the music of that sort of late 20s Harlem period, the black American small group stuff, if you like. Also, the the music of Duke Ellington, I was really fascinated by all those early things, the Black and Tan Fantasy and East St. Louis Toodaloo and all of those things that we finished up recording quite a few of. So the Harlem period was a source of musical fascination to me. There was a band that I was listening to on record called Walter Barnes' Royal Creolians. And I thought, that's a pretty good sounding name, the Walter Barnes' Royal Creolians. And they do a recording of uh, It's Tight Like That. thing 
fascinated me, so therefore it became the Royal Harlem Jazz Band. Well, Tim Harding didn't care for that name much, and he uh, entered us in the Geelong Jazz Festival as the Royal Harlem Heptet. Now, I never cared for that name much. <laughs> Robin Croft had been playing piano with us in the sort of reformed group, and we finally figured that we had enough stuff together to go and do a gig somewhere. And there was a bloke down at the Sandringham Yacht Club named Selby Joy. He was the entertainment's person, I suppose. But Robin approached him, because they were members of the Sandringham Yacht Club, Robin approached him and said, you know, we've got this jazz band, any chance of using us somehow? And Selby Joy said, yes, we can use you. We'll put a night on or something, whatever we did. I know we did a gig there. He said, what's the name of the band? And Robin said, well, we used to be called the Royal Harlem Jazz Band, but now we've sort of busted up and it's reformed. And Selby Joy said, well, what about the new Harlem Jazz Band? So Selby Joy and Robin Croft, between them, came up with the name of the band. It was a great name, really. It, it said everything it needed to say, and it carried the relevance of the period in time that I was interested in through to the, to the time of, of then, which was now the late 1960s. New Harlem Jazz Band had a nice ring to it, sort of said everything that it needed to say and that I was happy with, and so that's what we became. With the front lines settled, all that was needed to complete the band's lineup was a pianist. Robin Croft had already moved on. Ian was on his way to work one morning when he ran into Doug Rawson. Anyhow, I stopped in the street and we had a chat. This is before work. We're all running a bit late. And he said, look, do you want to come and play with the band? Would you like to come along and have a have a, uh, a go? And I said, oh, that'd be great. So that's, that's how I actually met Smithy, although I must have known him. I can't recall exactly how I did know him, but we knew each other enough to know him in the street and he knew me. Doug had started taking an interest in music when he was very young. I was interested in music mainly because my dad was uh, a player by ear. He, he never really learned to play very well, although he, he did learn. And we had a lovely old Schultz pianola at home. And of course, the pianola rolls at the time were, were great. I knew them all back the front. When I was about 11 or 12, I was down the end of the street one day. This lady came along. She said, oh, have you got a piano at home, little boy? And I said, yes. Oh, do you learn piano? No. Oh, where do you live? Well, next thing, she was standing for business. <laughs> Knocks on the door. Mum and Dad signed me up. And she was the classical teacher of the old school. Started me off on the John Thompson book, which is One Finger. Roared through that because I had a good a good ear. And uh, then we got onto two hands and I started to struggle a bit because I actually had to try and read the bass line. And after some time she realised I was playing by ear and there was a little bit of trouble after that. I gave it away after about two years, which I regret because I can't read music to play sight reading. Around about when I was 15 or 16, I was very interested in the hit parades, all those great songs of the 50s. I liked the rock and roll stuff and the country stuff, uh, but the jazz scene was sort of coming on and uh, there was a jazz dance up in Kew called Gasworks. The area band played up there. And I went up there with a few of my friends one Saturday night and it wasn't the slightest bit interested in dancing, but the band knocked me out. Anyhow, it became a habit. I'd go up there every, every Saturday night. And through that I met people like Peter Stagg and who was a trumpet player at the time around the town, about my age, a little bit younger. 
And they were actually sort of playing, not professionally, of course. And there was a guy called Don Standing who was a banjo player and he'd organised these Saturday soirees, Saturday afternoons, where we'd all go along and basically help teach each other to play jazz. And it was really very helpful to me. Uh, at the same time, I was taking lessons off Frank Trainer, who was a trombone player around the town, but a very good pianist. And he got me onto the the, the inversions of chords and, and how you can get around not having to actually read music, and uh, people would call it faking, I suppose, but a lot of very good jazz players use the same method. And that that got me into the stage where I could play in a band. Then I used to go down to Memphis, which was a jazz dance in uh, Malvern. Frank's band was there for Saturday night with Judith Durham singing, and uh, I was still taking lessons off him at the time, so I got to know all the band, and of course I got to know a lot of the the jazz aficionados of my age that were all hanging around listening to the listening to the music. From there, I started a little band of my own called the Foster's Five. I had this band down at the um, White Horse Inn in Hawthorne. Out the back it had a little beer garden undercover with a lemon tree and a piano. And I happened to know the public because I'd drink there and whatever. And I said, um, look, what about we put a band in a Saturday? There was no mention of money. We weren't paid at the time, but they um, gave us drinks. But it was good because, again, there was, I got to know people that would come and sit in, various musicians around the town my own age. With Doug at the piano, the lineup was now complete. The band was practising regularly and gigs started to happen a little more often. Lots of gigs. We did a memorable gig at, I think, the Mentone Lifesaving Club, which was pretty rough. Or was that the Jan Juck Lifesaving Club? Because I know we played both. There was another one. Um, we played in a, oh, like a cow shed for a wedding, I think. No, a buck's turn. We went in New Faces twice. Like we, I think we won our heat and did okay in the... What did they have, a final or something? Can't remember. That was good fun. band appeared at the Geelong Jazz Festival in 1969 and again in 1970. Jeff Tobin is one of the presenters of Jazz on Saturday, the long-running show on 3CR, presented by the Victorian Jazz Club, and with Ian Smith, presents mainly Trad on Inner FM. Jeff was at the 1970 Geelong Jazz Festival. It would have been in late 1970... I remember driving down there, I drove a mate down there and he said, oh, you've really got to hear this band called New Harlem. He said, they're like the Red Onions used to be, only better. I didn't follow that up, but that was the first time I heard New Harlem. Parks remembers the band's performance. One tune in particular. The most memorable tune for me, I'm pretty sure, was Cushionfoot Stomp because of that fantastic solo, which I bled for that solo, <laughs> trying to learn the bloody thing. But it's magnificent, and to you know, to have your name called out as the soloist. Thank you very much. Uh, a tune for you now, titled Cushionfoot Stomp. 
Featuring our wonderful, talented, sousaphone player, Mr. Jeffrey Parks. <laughs> During 1972, the band got an opportunity to do some recording for the Jazz Note label. They were planning a series of albums called Australian Jazz of the 70s. Volume 1 would feature on one side the Yarra Yarra Jazz Band and the New Harlem Jazz Band on the other. However, Jeff Parks was making plans to leave the band. I had planned to go to Queensland with a mate and I'd um, traded in my old car and bought a van that I could sleep in but Ian wanted to do this recording so I actually hung around to do to complete the recording and then I left for Queensland. But the recording session didn't turn out well. We did a we did a, an, uh, an abortive recording session but we weren't no one was happy with the result the band didn't play well I personally didn't play well you know it, it was it was never never saw the light of day. Jeff recorded that first session in that in the house in Brighton and then 
headed off. A new recording session was planned, but they needed to find a replacement for Jeff. When Ian Smith called late in 1972, I'd hardly played the tuba in the past four years. I was in my first year at art school, studying photography. I'd had a pretty good run after learning to play the tuba in the school cadet band. I started listening to jazz and used to play along to records in my bedroom. Chris Barber, Duke Ellington, the Yarra Yarra Jazz Band and Frank Trainer's Jazz Preachers. Eventually, I did some busking with some other kids from school. When I was about 16, I started going to the Onion Patch in Oakley on a Saturday night and was captivated by the Red Onion's music and antics. John Scurry and I were in the same class and John was learning banjo from the Onions banjo player, Rainer Brett. When Rainer left the band, he recommended John to replace him. Late in 1965, after Kim Lynch left the Onions to play bass in The Loved Ones, I replaced him. Yes, it sometimes is who you know. I considered myself pretty fortunate to be playing tuba with such an amazing group of guys. I had very little experience and had a lot to learn. They were willing to teach me, and it wasn't too long before I found myself on stage at the Sydney Town Hall, performing with the band at the 20th Australian Jazz Convention. Going from the sublime to the ridiculous, we'll carry on with the Jello Roll Morton thing now entitled... Um, oh yes, George's Wing. played lots of gigs, sometimes two in one night, including a long-running residency at the Terminus Hotel in Brighton. The Big Band Memories album was recorded in 1966, and in 1967 the band sailed for Europe on the Fairstar, the fun ship. We were away for nine months and played constantly throughout England and on the continent. I'd say the most memorable part of this trip was our time in Poland and an appearance at Jazz Jamboree 67 in Warsaw.
I had promised my parents I'd resume my university studies and left the Red Onions not long after we returned. I completed my degree and worked for one of the big banks for a couple of years before deciding to quit and study photography. I got the tuber out again when one of my fellow photography students, John Brash, started a band called Biggles and the Flyboys. It was a loose arrangement of strings, washboard and tuba. We did a few gigs, including one supporting Skyhooks. One day, Ian Smith rang and asked if I was interested in helping out New Harlem. He explained that they were doing a recording session soon, but their tuba player had recently left. I was a student again, with no income, and was happy to agree to help out. I went to a rehearsal at Ian's flat and met the band. I didn't know any of them, but they seemed a decent bunch, with an admirable commitment to what they were doing. We rehearsed the songs they were planning to record, and being part of it felt like a comfortable fit to me. It was the start of a long association. to town, a track from the second recording session, which was held in Emulation Hall, a former Masonic temple in Canterbury. The empty hall proved to be way too echoey for a successful recording, but after the band relocated to the stage and the curtain was closed, the space worked quite well. But another unexpected problem arose. The recording engineers were pressed for time. Bill Horton and his partner... They were the two engineers that did it. And when we got there, they had a roast dinner to get to. I mean, fancy a recording engineer organising a recording session and hurrying everyone up because he didn't want his roast dinner burnt. I think we started about 8 or 9 in the morning or something, finished at about 1.30. And it was pretty good effort. I think we did 8 or 9, 10 tracks or something. For some members of the band, the album was to be forever known as... Memories of a burnt roast Sunday lunch. Ian and the rest of the band were pretty happy with the result. It's really good because it's it's really the sort of 
it's the uh, culmination of about four, four or five years of, of, of development in the musicians in the band and recorded and recorded reasonably well. And, of course, Ian Fleming was gone not long after that. He, um, he had a beautiful tone and a beautiful sound. Certainly pleased with it in the context of the time, you know. There's a couple of nice things that happen. I was pleased with, with all of the tunes, really, for what they are. Who walks in when I walk out, I'm, I'm pleased with. It's honest and it's blokes trying. And it's, and it's you know, it's sort of... It's, it's not really pushing the envelope. It's being comfortable in the pushing of the envelope. But it's, but it's an honest recording of people doing things, you know. The album includes two tunes written by Duke Ellington... Going to Town and Black and Tan Fantasy, the first of many Ellington tunes recorded by the band, and two by the prolific songwriting duo of Jimmy McHugh and Dorothy Fields, Magnolia's Wedding Day and this one, recorded many times by Duke Ellington, Harlem River Quiver. track on the album is Who Walks In, a tune that in different forms remained a constant part of the band's repertoire for many years. 
You've been listening to Episode 2 of Who Walks In, the story of the New Harlem Jazz Band. In the next episode, the band records both sides of an LP after three changes in the lineup. Who's that who I'm talking about? You can learn more about the band and contact us at whowalksin.com. Look forward to hearing from you. This has been a Wasting Time production. Thank you.